back to episode four of the Double Dip Podcast, your source for everything related to fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Thank you for joining us again. Uh, we're going to continue on from where we left off the last episode with uh, the segment, Who the Hell Are Glenn and Eric? Uh, <laughs> this time, following up with a few more questions for Glenn. Oh, so it's, it's my turn to talk. I said in the last episode that everybody knows who Glenn Langenberg is, but uh, uh, maybe we can we can uh, introduce some. Sus- I suspect you'll ask some questions that uh, the listeners may not know about me. So I'm, that's what I'm hoping for. So Glenn, your turn to be in the interview seat. All right, um, I'm, I'm getting my wine ready. It's uh, Friday evening, so let's start going back to before you know you were involved in in Leighton Prince. Uh, at the uh, Minnesota BCA. Oh, how, how did you get started in uh, in college, and how did how did you transition from what you were doing in college to this field? Yeah, um, for me, I was actually always interested in forensic science. I right around um, sophomore year in high school, which would have been many years ago, uh, I I was introduced. Uh, to the topic of forensic science by a, a high school uh, teacher of mine. And there was actually a show on that very few people probably will ever know that it ever existed. It was well before CSI, but it was sort of pre-CSI. It was called Unsub. And the idea was it was this six or five you know, five-person crew. There was the criminologist. There was the uh, handwriting expert. There was the... Um, almost like a psychic, there was uh, the profiler, there was the forensic person, the evidence, and they each week they kind of were chasing uh, serial killers and all that. But it left an impre- it only lasted like five or six episodes, but it left an impression on me that you could use science to really make an impact. I mean, I was sort of on this edge of, do I want to be an agent and an investigator, let's say at the FBI, or use science, which I was always kind of a science lover and geek my whole life. And I, I really liked that route. And once I knew this job existed called a forensic scientist, I, I never looked back. I, I grew up in Michigan, in Detroit, and we, there were two big schools for forensic science at that, at that time. Uh, that you could go and get an undergraduate degree. One was in Hawaii, which sounded really nice, but was very expensive. And the other was right. at Michigan State, which was an hour and a half from Detroit. So guess where I went, Eric? Well, I would, I would, I would guess Hawaii, of course. Absolutely incorrect. Uh, no, no. <laughs> so I ended up going to Michigan State. And they had a really good program and had a really good professor. And again, he motivated all of us to get very interested in forensic science. Uh, his name was is is J J Siegel, Dr. J Siegel. He was one of oh, the yes. yeah, he was one of the um um National Academy of Science NRC report uh, committee members. And so I remember when I had to go and testify in front of the NRC, uh, it was just like being back in college and having to go through my moot court exam again with Dr. Siegel asking, you know, very poignant questions about latent print examinations. Huh. So that, uh, I mean, I, I always knew I wanted to be a forensic scientist, but what I thought was I wanted to do something like uh, firearms or even question documents. I just liked that, that concept. Um, and then when I did my internship, it was in toxicology. And then when I came back from my internship, my internship was over in Scotland. And um, when I came back oh, from wow. 
One, uh, and it was great because they let their interns actually work cases. I got to actually work real cases with real toxicologists. It was a great experience. And when I came back from Scotland, I applied to toxicology positions in the United States, thinking this experience would help me. And I kept applying and kept applying, and I, I never never could get in into a lab. They just kept you know, saying you need more experience or education. And eventually I moved from Michigan to Minnesota, which for you in the Southwest there, uh, you probably don't even care about the difference <laughs> because they're both M states in the, the northern part of the country and cold, but there is a big difference. And once I knew I was going to be in Minnesota, I was fairly limited on job opportunities. So there was the state lab, which is the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. So was it that the BCA would hire you on with um, with no experience, and the, the other city labs needed some experience for you to get, go, get going? Is that how you ended up in BCA? Not at all. In fact, no? I, I applied to BCA probably three or four different times, and one of the times I applied, uh, one of the supervisors who had interviewed me said I did really well during the interviews, but he said the, the thing is you're being beat by people that have more education. And he recommended I go back and, and get a, a master's degree. So I, I took his advice and I went to the University of Minnesota, got a master's degree in analytical chemistry, and then started applying again for toxicology jobs. And again, when I interviewed at the BCA, the director at the time said, well, now you're being beat by someone with PhDs. You should really consider going back and getting, getting more education. So I did. I continued working on a PhD in toxicology. But in one of these last interviews, I just happened to mention, it was just, it was so strange. I just happened to mention on my way out that while I've been applying to these tox jobs, I'm interested in toxicology, I've always actually been really interested in firearms or question documents. And he said, well, we don't have any positions open in that now. And I didn't realize you like the pattern evidence areas, but would you right. be interested in, in latent prints? We have a position open for that right now. And I looked him square in the eye, and I lied my butt off. I said, <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact, I would be. And because I, I, I just kept thinking if I could get a position in the crime lab uh, within exactly. six months or a year, maybe I could transfer to a different division. So it was just sort of a foot in the door. But once I started taking some of the tests to be a latent print examiner, they would give images of fingerprints, do comparisons, um, just the very basic interview test, I, I couldn't believe how fun it was matching fingerprints. And when they did eventually hire me, I, I, I just couldn't believe how much I loved looking at fingerprints. In fact, I was supposed to spend one day a week in the tox unit doing research and then four days in training in fingerprints. So Friday was going to be my tox day. And in my year of training... There wasn't a single Friday that I actually went over to toxicology. <laughs> Come Friday, I just I couldn't put the comparisons down. I just kept wanting to compare and compare. So when you were talking about you know you know your love of comparing fingerprints, I, I really can understand that. It just it's so fun to do comparisons. I and it was just a natural fit for me. And I, I look back now and just think if if I ever did get that job in toxicology, I'm not sure I would have stayed in forensics. Uh, this field is so wide open for research and motivated people to just jump in and do things. I mean, coming from a you know a traditional chemistry background and toxicology, 
I mean, it's like you have to put in 20, 30 years before anyone really cares about anything exactly. you have to say. But this profession, it was really very inviting to new motivated people. I mean, I look at you and I look at Alice and you, Henry Swafford at the Army Crime Lab. And you look at some of the other folks in Las Vegas, David Johnson and, you know, Carrie Hall. And just, you know, new young people coming in the profession who are super motivated and want to make an impact. And this profession is actually pretty, pretty open to that. And I, and I really like that. Uh, it's strange how we kind of ended up in the same place, uh, but the, the path being very different in that uh, at Arizona, there, there is no really applying for uh, a specific uh, unit. When they need you know, new people, they kind of let it build up a bit and then put out an application for a criminalist position. And those that apply and get on that list may be placed in you know, in any unit. And, you know, it's a little different if someone comes in with experience, sure. uh, previous experience from another crime lab. But, but uh, just for someone, you know, out of college with whatever degree, that's kind of how that system works for us. And not only that, is is that, uh, you know, more advanced degrees don't get you further ahead on the list. Um, or, or more pay. Or more pay, exactly. It, it you know, there are people with, with master's degrees that maybe are hired after someone with just a bachelor's degree. Uh, and it's really just how you do on that, that intro written and an oral test that uh, determines where you get hired. And then just the kind of general impression of, you know, supervisors at the lab as to, you know, who wants which person for which unit. Right. Uh, you know, it, it's yep. funny, too, that if you had asked me before to rank, you know, which units I want to work in, there is no doubt that I would have put Leighton Prince last. Because all the tours that I had in college of crime labs, you know, we'd go to the Michigan State Crime Lab or, you know, some of the other city labs and do these tours. Every time they would take us to Leighton Prince, it was always the same thing they show us in Leighton Prince. It was a computer and some old cranky guy sitting at an APHIS terminal just clicking through images on a screen and I just thought oh my god shoot me just shoot me if I ever had to do that job and sit and look at fingerprints I just thought it was the most redundant repetitive I mean it, I, I honestly equated that mentally to the forensic science equivalent of the DMV that was how I saw that so the fact that I'm in latent prints and love doing latent prints let me let me ask you this. Uh, uh, you asked me about you know my, my papers. Uh, you you you've published a couple of things. Is that correct? Uh, one or two. <laughs> one or two <laughs> papers. And you know I I've been really lucky to have been involved in research. And, and I'm gonna plug again. You know the agency I work for here because you know the state of Minnesota. They're one of the few labs that really just you know they as long as you get your work done. They, re they really just get out of the way and let you go. I mean, they just give you a really long leash. And as long as you don't embarrass them <laughs> or, you know, in some way do, do some really, you know, bad things, they, they really give you free reign. And, that, and, I, and I love that aspect. So, you know, we, we all kind of do equal amount of work in our lab. And when we're done with our work, we can, you know, do what we want. Um, some people like to do more cases after that. I like to kind of use my, my free time to do research and... You know, especially in Minnesota in the winter, our caseload drops quite a bit. So we have the opportunity 
um, you know, to get caught up in winters. And that's when I tend to do a lot more of my research. And, and again, the BCA where I work has been very supportive of that. And I just, I, I've had lots of job offers over the years, but I've stayed there because I, again, looking at the bigger picture, it was more important to me to have those opportunities than to get, a, you know, what, what might be a nice bump in salary. The Just being able to say, I love where I work, I love the people I work with, and they allow me to be motivated and do what I'm passionate about, which is research and casework. I, I, I couldn't, uh, I mean, I couldn't think of a better fit for me. Now, Glenn, uh, I know you've, you've taught a lot of classes uh, around the country, around the world even. What's one of the more entertaining stories you have from uh, a classroom environment with uh, latent print examiners gathered to, to hear what wisdom <laughs> you have to impart? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, the first one that came to mind, going out to Australia. And when I was in Australia, I had a chance to uh, do some lectures for a conference, but then they invited me to come speak at the University of Technology in Sydney, UTS. And they wanted a couple hours on some of the research that I've done and that other, other people have done. So I kind of gave one of my talks about you know, what studies have been done to show the accuracy, reliability, and validity of ACE-V. But when I was there, before coming, they asked me what I like to drink. <laughs> and I said, well, I, I told them what my favorite wine was. And they said, well, we couldn't get this wine for you. But when I arrived, they had a, a wine that supposedly was going to taste very similar and was a very good red wine. And they also had some beer. And they had a Michigan State Beer Cozy. So they gave both to me and said, here, here's some beer, here's some wine, now give your presentation. So I got to give my talk, and I have a picture of this, we should put this on the website, <laughs> I got to give my talk with a beer in one hand and a wine in the other, and they were such a cool, relaxed group. So that was a, that was a nice experience, and apparently, I have now set the bar, because now when some of the PhD students are presenting... They have beer and wine in hand, and they call it. They they've referred to it as pulling a Glen. Pulling a Glen. Uh, well, that's fantastic. Well, um, thank you, Glenn. Any other uh, you know kind of parting items that uh, people may not know about you? Uh, I think people are going to start seeing a lot more magic coming from me. I'm enjoying. That's right. I'm enjoying uh, becoming a magician, and so I'm using more magic in some of my presentations. It's fun. It's entertaining. It actually, the it, for me, it makes me much more nervous about presenting. I've almost sort of, because I'm you know I've presented many of these lectures over the years, so I kind of get used to it. But it makes me nervous again. It reminds me of what it was like to present, you know, 10 years ago when I first started presenting. So now I'm actually really nervous to come out on stage because I'm much more worried about some of these, ma you know, magic moves and certain, you know, little tricks and stuff than actually presenting the latent print material. So yeah. that's uh, that's been kind of a fun new little thing for me. You know, I, I, I got a chance to, to uh, visit you in St. Paul early, early this year in the bitter, bitter cold. Yes. Uh, and... Uh, and you were nice enough to show me some of these tricks, and uh, it, was, it was funny. Illusions. Um, I was there with my coworker uh, Penny Deckend, yes. and we talked later on after um, you had gone home. That uh, you know, usually you seem so you know calm and collected when you're 
doing some sort of presentation. Uh, but when you were just doing these magic tricks for us, just, just you know, not the whole crowd, just the two of us, you seemed very nervous. Yes, I and, definitely uh, was. Uh, it was, it was you know, something we both commented on at the time. But they turned out fantastic uh, <laughs> well, at, at the conference. I'm actually really anxious because uh, I'm going to be seeing you here in a, in a few weeks for your advanced ACB applications class you're doing back here in Mesa, Arizona. Um, and uh, my son has actually started uh, an interest in magic. Uh, and he'll, he'll go through and watch videos on YouTube and then try to, to duplicate the card tricks that, uh, that he sees there. Oh, sure. I, I, actually, that'd be great. I'd love to kind of talk to him, and I can probably point him in, in a few directions if he's interested. But... Oh, he, he would be ecstatic about that. That's great. The Double Loop Podcast is brought to you by Elite Forensic Services. Elite Forensic Services offers case review, forensic testing, SOP development, and professional forensic courses. Penny Deccant and Eric Ray have the newest course offered through Elite Forensic Services. Exclusion Standards to Reduce Errors is a three-day course providing hands-on examples and offering suggestions on standards to reduce erroneous exclusions. Head to EliteForensicServices.com for more information on this and many other latent print-related classes. And thanks for tuning in to the Double Loop Podcast. All right, so uh, we were going to talk about uh, some regional aspects. We, um, look, you want to talk about the, the suggestion that you have from one of our listeners? Yes, uh, one of our listeners, uh, Carrie Hall. Uh, oh, I know her. That we, yeah, you know her. You're... you're uh, you stole her away from uh, from Arizona and well the Phoenix Crime Lab and and uh, work with her up in in, uh, in Minnesota. No, she suggested that we, we talk about some of the differences uh, that occur between like print units in different parts of the country. And I think this directly relates to her experience transferring from Phoenix up to uh, to Minnesota. And and just as a point of aside, since we were just talking about, it, I mean, one of the things that lured her was certainly not the weather. Or even, of course, you know, the, the salary because, you know, they don't pay as much as, as I think in Phoenix and some other places. But it was, again, this opportunity for research. I mean, it's, it's just so rare to find a lab that is willing to emphasize the importance of research and foundations and validity. And that while, of course, getting cases out the door is important, if you haven't done, you know, this research and you haven't done this validity and foundation... You're not going to be able to get your cases in the courtroom, or they're not going to have the same impact. I mean, the the research is so critical, and then just so many laboratories don't don't see it that way. And that's that's what, again, I'm I'm glad she came up here for that research aspect. Even just uh, the, the the basic thing, uh, getting on to Carrie's topic of of differences between different regions, um, the the ID, the most basic conclusion in latent prints, the kind of the business that we're in. The, what what symbol represents the ID? Uh, what about, so, Glenn, what, what do you write down when you make an ID? Right. So I, I was taught, like many examiners, to make that weird circle with the line through the what looks like the Greek symbol phi. Um, I, so that's what I learned. Is that is that the same one you learned? Uh, for me, yeah, the circle with the, the line. And my line's nice and vertical, straight up and down. I've seen others that kind of more have a, a 45 degree angle on the line. Right, right, uh, as, as in no circles allowed here. Right, right. And I've seen others that, that more do, and I'm sure it's another Greek letter, but it's more of a, a not a perfect circle, but more of a, a curve.
curl that, that loops around, you know, starts at the top, loops around, and goes back down. So it almost looks like that uh, that phi symbol, but it's a little off. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know the origin of this. I've asked many examiners over the years, and no one can tell me where it actually came from. And certainly it doesn't correspond to anything I can imagine. And I was just working a defense case a couple of weeks ago, and the defense attorney has showed me the examiner's notes and he's like yeah they didn't make any ids here because they showed the little null symbol you know the, the phi symbol and I'm like right. no actually they identified your client and and the defense attorney was going well it doesn't make any sense because in their notes it looks like they've said no id no that actually means id <laughs> i mean it's it's, it, it's something we all get intuitively but, I mean, I can understand from their perspective how it didn't make any sense. Just looking real quick on my phone, the, the symbol I was describing is just the, the lowercase version of, of phi. Hmm. Um, H- have but, you uh, ever seen any anything else? Uh, well, when I first saw it, the, the thing that jumped out to me, and it's maybe just because my wife majored in math, so our bookshelf is full of math books, hmm. of, hmm. of not, not like math textbooks, but, but just books books about math that are that are you know fun and i'm making air quotes here when i say fun um (laughs) but uh you know they talk about um longitude and and just all these interesting stories about mathematicians in the past and and uh uh, i think she had two or three copies of fermat's last theorem oh yeah, yeah anyway one of the books that she had that was actually uh interesting for me uh was on Phi, the number phi, the golden ratio, uh, which is uh, a number that describes a perfect spiral uh, and can be found in nature in, in um, like the spiral of conch shells and growth of plants and, and all, all sorts of different things. But I'm, not, I'm just never quite sure how that would relate back to an identification. Yeah, that's something that we should maybe put out to the listeners if anybody knows where that symbol came from what agency first used it and and are you know are there agencies out there that are hearing this and going i have no idea what you're talking about i've never seen that before because i know it's it's fairly common in the u.s but maybe it's not common in other countries i'd I'd be very curious going on from there the next symbol that we'll use you know in our lab is for verifications is you know goes next to the, the phi symbol of the person who identified it is just a check mark for who yeah. verified the print. Yeah. Uh, do you do a similar thing for, uh, in your agency? Yeah, but be- actually, as resulting from a CAR uh, corrective action report, we now we used to do sort of a check mark initial and date. But one of the the things that happened is when we started moving into a digital realm. Uh, people would crop images and resave them, and so if we were documenting an identification it was very possible for the person to grab a known print and then when they would resave it, in one instance, I think they had typed the wrong finger number or something like that. So the verifier opens up the file, agrees it's identification, but it's it's the wrong finger that's named, but the verifier didn't check that this finger went to the, the right finger on the card. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? That Essentially, yeah. the, the original examiner had misnamed the file. The ID was valid, but the the finger number he was saying it was matching to, he had misnamed it. So now, as a result, we have to, in every instance, check that the finger 
in the image file that's been resaved is in fact that finger. So as part of our notes, it's not just your initials and date. You have to actually explicitly state that you checked. Here is this person, it's this person, and that finger. And as a result, I mean, we've seen a, a, a dramatic de decrease on uh, clerical errors and those types of, of things. Because now that's part of your check. And the verifier will be held to it exactly the same way that the initial examiner will be. So it's, it's, it's definitely a nice little double check to make sure that you're looking at the exactly the right finger. And what we'll right. do to, for that kind of situation is uh, we have to, for each ID, uh, the verifier and the original examiner have to mark in three places that this ID you know, happened. Uh, on the, we write it out on the lift card, if the, it's an actual lift card, or save it into the, uh, uh, as part of the digital file with our uh, you know, digital you know, image system. Uh, we have to write it, uh, it has to be printed out on a sheet in our notes, like a comparison worksheet. And then we also have to write this the ID symbol or the checkmark verification symbol on the actual printed out uh, exemplar card. Uh, so each, each ID is, is and verification is documented in all three of those places. Uh, on the exemplar card, is that sort of your note taking that I checked that this is the, the finger that the examiner said is the one that matches? So, uh, other questions on verification. Uh, when you when you guys verify, you have one verifier typically verify identifications, and do you ID or sorry, do you verify identifications, exclusions, and inconclusives? Uh, what do you, what do you verify, and how many verifiers? Uh, it's it's one, um, and we we verify uh, all three, no matter what the conclusion is uh, of the comparison. Uh, we we put any kind of no value determination through that's something checked by our technical reviewers I mean you could call it some labs call it a verification we just put that as part of our technical review and do you verify uh, what we what we call victim identifications as well I mean as you probably are aware there are certain agencies that even still today do not verify an identification if it comes back to the victim that they will only identify quote-unquote suspect identifications. My agency was one of these maybe a decade or so ago, and the, the, the and, and I can understand where they were coming from because they just didn't have the manpower. And so it usually comes down to we do this because we don't have enough people, you know, to do the actual work, so here's where we, you know, have cut, cut our losses essentially, and, and we don't do that. Right. Yeah, we've always verified even the, the victim elimination uh, identifications, and you know, I, I think that's a, it's a key thing because, and you may know more about this than I do, but I've always thought that uh, going back to the Shirley McKee print, mm, yes, that uh, that's that's exactly what happened in that case. Is that uh, you know the examiners were given this stack of latent prints, a stack of dozens of people to compare it to, mostly uh, elimination prints. And they were just going through, going through, and just marking out, yep, this one belongs to this guy, this one belongs to this guy. Uh, and they saw maybe those four points that kind of line up in uh, Shirley McKee's print, put that in the Shirley McKee pile, and, you know, moved on. And it was only because, you know, she spoke up and was so strenuous about, you know, how that she hadn't been in that house that things kind of fell apart for them. Uh, and obviously... For people who have seen that print, I mean, yeah, I mean, there are, there are, as you pointed, you know, just said, 
there are, say, four corresponding features near the core. And so one can begin to see why you might get started on that as well. But yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a great example of where an elimination print, i.e. a victim print identification, sort of went horribly wrong. Now, you know, um, Carrie is going to be very upset unless we, if we don't talk about the lift cars, huh. uh, because that's been her, her one of her big complaints about since moving up to Minnesota, is that uh, there is a little difference up in Minnesota yes. about the kind of cards that are used for uh, lifting uh, powder prints. And go ahead, and Glenn, talk a little bit about sure. uh, about the clear lift cards. Well, I don't think it's just Minnesota. I think it's kind of a North mis- Midwest thing because I'm talking to people okay. in other other agencies in Dakotas and down in Iowa and some places where um, I, I think it's maybe a little more common. So, right. So what we use are clear, thick plastic slides. These aren't like lift hinge lifters, but they're kind of like the, the clear plastic on the back of hinge lifters. And then we use clear tape to lift and put on that. So we're looking at something that it will transmit light and is completely transparent. Um, and the, the I think the thing that and what kind of powder? Well, that that's where that's where we really get to a problem is that we use gray powder. We like gray powder up here, so we use gray powder and and transparent lift cards. And this is very different than some parts of the country that prefer to use black powder. One of the things that we find with gray powder in the north is that we have more humidity up here. And it, it tends to paint surfaces differently than black powder does. Black powder doesn't stick the same way, whereas the gray powder tends to... Um, it gets a little more background noise, but you also end up with what appear to us to be a brighter ridges when you're viewing something you know, on the object or at the crime scene. Admittedly, when you lift it, it makes it harder to see by lifting a, a, you know, this, this gray powder on, on a clear lift. And that's where our frustration, or the frustration we've heard, is when we had people coming from different states up here who had never looked at clear lifts and weren't used to looking at gray or white powder um, were having problems. And just to add to this, because you know, I'd like to hear you talk about it, for the listeners, you know, we had a, an issue up here where, where the St. Paul Police Department had their crime lab essentially shut down and so for you know, six months or so, they had to go on a contract and bring in contractors from around the country, you know, like Houston PD and Boston PD and Nassau County and some of these places that brought in contractors for a while to get righted. You know, you had people coming in from who weren't familiar with our processes and then looking at it, and they were <laughs> very surprised to see clear lifts and gray powder. So yes, please, Eric, bash our our, our gray powder lips. Well, you know, I, like you kind of alluded to, I was up there for a little bit um, working on that contract, and uh, uh, I, I don't recall really seeing much gray powder. It it was basically all white powder as well when I saw. <laughs> yeah, I was just having the worst time trying to see some of those white prints on a clear card. Well, it, I mean, I guess it, every... it, it brings up an, an interesting issue that, you know, how many times are prints being missed by examiners who can't quite see, you know, the, uh, is there a, a specific powder, say black powder, that's better 
and provides better contrast for the examiner? Um, it, it's an interesting question across the board that are some prints missed because of the, the color powder that was used, regardless of if it's a clear lift or not. But I see that. Yeah, well, I, I mean, one of the things I heard from a, a contractor that came up here and that was in, you know, in the St. Paul Police Department looking at some of their cases was since they weren't expecting the gray powder aspect, they and they, they didn't even know which way to look through the lift because they they never really considered before that it could come. You could look at the lift either way, you know, this side or turn it over and look at the other side. That you know there are some real problems with when even when they were trying to scan the lifts, not knowing which is the correct orientation and how to look for gray powder prints. I mean that I never thought about that before because it was very of course natural to me. That's all I ever knew were these gray powder lifts on you know clear clear lifts. Now, uh, what about uh, the magnetic powder? Do you guys? Is that part of your processes as well? It is. I mean, you know, I work for, you know, the state. So when we go and train local agencies, we teach them uh, to use... Well, in fact, I, I kind of follow Helen Bandy, B-A-N-D-Y. She's uh, a researcher over in the UK with the Home Office Department. And she's put out a, a series of really good articles on which powders to use on which surfaces. And their findings, after looking at thousands of fingerprints... Their findings showed that uh, the magnetic powders are better on more textured surfaces. And so a lot of times we'll use them, um, we'll, we'll tell the officers, you know, stick to black powder or gray powder depending on the color of the surface. And I know, again, you have a different view on that, we'll get to in a second. But we tell them if it's a, obviously a dark surface, you use gray powder. If it's a light surface, you use black powder and if it's a more textured surface or pvc like some of the plastic pvc use magnetic powder and again this is just coming off of the research that was done in the uk but why don't you guys talk about what you guys do there with how it what powder have you guys chosen eric well down in arizona um it's it's black and i've spoken with co-workers that will occasionally um go out and, and teach at the academies, uh, instructing officers uh, new to the force on how to, um, uh, how to powder. And if they've discovered that any of these new recruits have come in with different colors other than black, they're, the colors are confiscated and, <laughs> and not returned. Uh, but uh, in the lab, um, we'll, we stick with either uh, black powder, black magnetic powder, or a mixture of the two. That was going to be my next question: is if if you have kind of uh, if you used that mixture uh, technique before. When you say mixture, is this the what's called bichromatic powder? No, um, it, the the colloquial term uh, that came up in my training was magic juice. <laughs> I I have never heard that term. I did. And I I've never I, heard I'm, that before. No, I'm I'm only familiar with the bichromatic, which supposedly looks dark on a white lift back and light on a dark lift back but it's 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 trying to um you know it's trying to satisfy two diametrically exactly. opposed things so you end up with either something that's really kind of too light on a light background or too you know too white on it it's it it's, it doesn't set you're trying to please two things that are right and you don't separate. really meet either one right exactly uh, no this is this is basically taking kind of 50-50 mix of black powder and black magnetic powder 
uh, applying it with the magnetic wand. And typically we'll use that um, oh. on if we want to powder after uh, superglue fuming. I, I, I so, have to say, I, have, I, I am aware of this. We, we, okay. we did this practice. I, one of my trainers taught me this, and we did that for a while where we did mix the two. I'm sa- I thought you were mixing two different color powders. You're mixing oh, no, no, no. black ash powder and black magnetic powder together. Right. Okay, right. all right. I, I, what is, and what is the perceived advantage of doing that? It's... Um, I, I did say perceived. It's uh, on just certain surfaces. It, it, it kind of it's, it's a little. It's got more particles that will stick to the super glue than just um, the uh, the magnetic powder, uh, but uh, still not have the any kind of brush strokes get into uh, what onto the surface from the brush of a black powder. Hmm. I think it's kind of you know the, the basics of what was explained to me. Okay. Well, all right. Fair enough. You guys found. Um, not not, uh, not some not as good results with that. I uh, I I can't say one way or the other. I know we I know that one of my trainers talked about it and showed me that. I don't know that I saw. You know I I don't know that I certainly haven't done the research that would say one way or the other. Uh, right. And I I think I sort of discontinued that after he retired. So. Got it. Any other topics that we can think of with the regional differences between uh, agencies? Well, you know, as a matter of fact, there was one more that I had, and when I travel around or do defense work, you know, I read a lot of agencies' reports, and nowhere do I find more confusion than in how we um, report some of our conclusions. And, you know, this was one of the things that the National Academy of Science picked up on. This is something that ASCI Lab has picked up on, that we use these terms that are either... Like you use the word colloquial, you know, there's something that we kind of understand within an agency or within a region. But man, I'm, the minute I go and pull someone's report from another part of the country, you know, they're in a, they're they're qualified fingerprint examiner. I'm a qualified fingerprint examiner, and I have no idea what they're saying. So some examples. One of my favorite examples is when we're talking about exclusion decisions. You know, Swigfast has clearly defined that when you say they're from different people the latent print and the known print did not come from the same person the word is exclusion exclusion right right so if everyone used the word exclusion then no problems but when i read these reports or you know do you know do these private cases here are some of the one the terms i come across elimination no identification right. no identification affected non-identification no make that's very California is no make. That's like Southern Cal, <laughs> L.A. area, no make. make that sounds no like make. a SoCal kind of thing. Yeah. No hit, which, of course, you know, we're often dealing with an APHIS environment or an APHIS screener. No ID, negative results, and, you know, there's probably a few others. But the one that really confused me the, the first time I saw it was this elimination. Because some agencies, they use elimination like exclusion. But in one report I read... Right. The latent prints were compared against the you know the victim John Smith or whatever. If John Smith is listening. I apologize for for calling you out. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, but it was compared against the victim, and and the victim was eliminated. 
And I took that to go, okay, well, it's not his prints. And then I read further in the notes and see, you know, some, some further notes, and he made an identification in the case. He had identified the victim, but they said we eliminated the victim. And how confusing is that, that you're using the word, I'm eliminating this person, but that means I've identified that person. And that's, that's a real problem. I mean, that, I can't tell at all what that person is saying by using that, that phrase. So, you know, these, and, and some of the other phrases, no identification was affected. You know, we can have another show on, on that. There are many I was actually just about to suggest that that, well, that maybe that's our next show, episode five, is is talking about um, you know some of these terms and and maybe kind of where some of them came from. Yeah, yeah. what the thought process is behind them and and you know, why they may be falling out of style or still sticking around or something like that. Ooh, well, that's a good teaser. Maybe we'll just leave it right there. Cliffhanger. What does no identification <laughs> mean? Well, I was going to compare no identification. Always leave them wanting more. Uh, I was going to compare no identification to non-ID or non-ident, which you think they are basically saying the same things, but it turns out they can be completely different. So, I mean, it's just, it's so surprising to me how similar the terms are, and yet as a qualified, certified fingerprint examiner, I have no idea what some examiners are actually trying to convey in their reports. That's, that's true, and, and um, you know, some of them come from older versions of Swigfast and Twigfast and, and well maybe I'm getting ahead of myself but we'll yeah, we can talk next about episode. some of that uh, next episode well that's been great uh, I think we got uh, went over learning a little bit more about Glenn we talked about uh, uh, regional differences in the late print community in uh, lift cards uh, ID symbols and, and uh, terminology and I want to thank everyone for joining us again on our uh, longest episode so far of the Double Loop Podcast you can find us every Tuesday on SoundCloud.com, and we'll soon be available through Stitcher and iTunes. So uh, thanks again for joining us for another week, and we'll see you again next week. Bye, Bye. everybody. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. This podcast is brought to you by Elite Forensic Services. Elite Forensic Services provides quality forensic services by distinguished forensic professionals. We provide expert consultation for prosecution or defense, criminal or civil, on forensic cases and specialize in fingerprints, DNA interpretation, bloodstain pattern, and other types of forensic evidence. We can also provide customizable training and SOP development for your agency. Check out EliteForensicServices.com for upcoming training courses and workshops. Music provided on this podcast by Mevio's Music Alley. Check it out at music.mevio.com.